Hello and welcome. This is the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try to F it up in a very, very humble opinion. I'm Giles Alderson, a director and writer of The Dare. And we are sat here in... Best Hotel in London. In the um, Ham Yard Hotel. I am with Dom Lemoir, um, fantastic director, lovely guy. Thank you. Great hair. You have good hair at the moment. You got it trimmed and I was like, Dom looks fine right Thank now. Thank you very much. You've got quite a, quite a handsome uh, barnet. I don't try and turn it around now. Um, it's, it's nothing, it's a kind of weird thing when we do the compliments. We go, oh, you deflect away from yourself, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Well, it's so no, I'm going to own it. Thank you, I do look great. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> um, we're here to talk uh, to Anthony McCartan about his fantastic written film, The Two Popes. Mm. Uh, and we also talk about Bohemian Rhapsody a little bit, which he wrote as well. Uh, a cheeky bit about Darkest Hour. And also a theory of everything, yeah. which he also wrote That's and produced. Uh, and his eight-year challenge to get there, to get it onto the screen, when he was pretty much a, a nobody, if you like, in the world of Hollywood at the time. Even though he directed a movie and made a load of shorts and made lots of films and written loads of plays. Isn't it funny how you have to really find your own way to be a filmmaker? Yeah, and, and that's kind of always the, the the common thread is that you know, no matter how many times you hear it, everyone's full of doubt all the time and full of these kind of feelings of like, oh, nothing's going to ever happen. Mm. And then it does happen, and then you're just sort of in the in the club. I mean, uh, yeah, he's, we're sort of doing this in hindsight, the intro. But, but yes. there's, some, there's some very good analogies about skyscrapers and... and you know, once you've built one, that's that's where the contractor goes, and that's, mm-hmm. it's very telling that you know you kind of have, it's almost this chicken and egg of having made that one film, and there's a lot of rejection until you do, and then when you do, you're just in the club, and that's it. Yeah, though you've still got to work really hard when you're in the yeah. club. I mean, he was in the club. The fear of everything was, yeah, welcome to that club. We we're in the indie film club, which is a different club. It's, it's not like people at Hollywood knocking on our door going, hey, hey, here's another script, big Hollywood stuff. They don't seem to do that. Um, speaking of Hollywood, here's your chance to get your script in front of um, the best out there that there is because this episode is sponsored by the good people at ScreenCraft.org. Uh, it's a proud sponsor of the Filmmakers Podcast and they are back again. Uh, to sponsor this week's episode and next week's episode with Kirsty wilson Cairns, who wrote 1917. Because they have the 2020 Screencraft Screenwriting Fellowship, which is now accepting applications. Uh, the final deadline to apply is coming up on the last day of February. So, you've got nothing to lose. You've got your screenplay ready. Put it in. Do it. Go to screencraft.org forward slash fellowship before the end of January. The Screencraft Fellowship has helped dozens of emerging screenwriters launch their careers. Uh, and up to four winners of the 2020 Screencraft Screenwriting Fellowship will receive all expenses paid travel to Los Angeles for a week of meetings and mentorship with top Hollywood professionals. Cool. You, you just cannot miss this opportunity. It's amazing. Screencraft.org forward slash fellowship. And they're currently reading submissions now. All right, Sam. You good? Sam we, from we, we, we're just recording the intro. Have we got five minutes in here? Yeah, yeah, of course. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Sam from DDA, if you want your film promoted. Did a great film called I Love My Mum. I'm going to plug that there. You should, because we should yeah. also plug Winter Ridge. Yes, actually, that's a very good point. We should. It is winter time. <laughs> 
It's winter, therefore you should it's see winter my film. Time. Winter Ridge. It's, it's Winter Ridge. Right. Not set in the winter. It, it, it kind of is, and is it's, it? It, yeah, yeah. it's raining one day. <laughs> it, it's very it's very wintry. It is uh, wintry. It, it's got a cold uh, detective Scandinavian vibe about it. If you're and listening to this podcast and you know Dom and you haven't seen the film yet. More for you. Yeah. Totally. Come on, support. This yeah. is why we do this, right? Amazon Prime, Sky Store. Uh, Get it anywhere you like. Anywhere you like. And while we're Just promoting, A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, which yep. I produced, is out on January the 13th. Yeah. Uh, so you can pre-order that now. Link is in the show notes to both Dom's film and to Serial Killers. Get involved. That's what this is about, right? It is. Uh, and if you do like this podcast, do subscribe. Do tell your friends. Help us grow. Help make it bigger. Isn't that right, Dom? Should we make it bigger? Yeah, why not? Expand the, the wonderful community of filmmakers. Of course we should. We've got Anthony McCartan on this podcast. Big screenwriter. This is great. You get to listen to that for free. Do us a favour. Why not? Go... Yeah, hang on. I'm on a rant now. Um, go go to iTunes. Give us a five-star review. Yeah? Yeah. 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 Well, if this is coming out on the 31st, I'm going to tell you that there's a very, very, very good new Make Your Film. Start the new century... Yeah. I mean, that's pretty exciting. There is. What date is it, Dom? It's 28th of January. Yep. Uh, humongous guests. We have got humongous have. guests. We've got uh, Poppy Edra and Staten Cousins Row, who are the writer, producer, Staten's a director, and Poppy's the star. They do all of those, and they're coming on the Make a Film event. They're our first announced guests. But January the 28th, link is in the show notes. Click it. Come along. Make a film. And go and make your film. Right, let's get to today's podcast with Anthony McCartan, a brilliant screenwriter, producer as well. What have you got to lose? Well, you're already listening, so you've got nothing to lose. (laughs) Less. They they gave us half an hour. There we go, yeah. So, you've got half an hour. Enjoy your commute, enjoy yourself in the bath, enjoy your cycle ride. If you're running, don't run into things as you're running. Uh, I've been Giles Alders, and you've been... Dom Lenoir. Oh, you got a seal then. That's nice. Uh, we will see you next Tuesday. Uh, take care. <laughs> Wait, listen to... Just listen. It's happening now. I'm pressing stop so that you can press play. Just, just stop talking. Okay. Anthony, pleasure to have you here. Absolute joy. This is the Filmmakers Podcast. We talk about filmmaking. So this is the podcast about screenwriting, filmmaking. Uh, we're filmmakers and we talk to filmmakers about how they make their films and how they write them and, and that kind of so stuff. Should be very comfortable. Should, exactly. That's what we're saying. This is why in this theory. might be. In theory, theory. <laughs> this should be much easier. Um, but uh, exactly. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we suppose we want to get straight in. Obviously, The Two Popes is a, a fantastic film uh, and really fun. Right, and really just really interesting, right? Chick, 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 chick. There we go. There we go. Yeah. Now we can hear you. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it, you know, it's so fascinating. It covers so many issues, which you kind of don't expect. And it's a weird thing. You look at the poster and you kind of go, the two popes, this might be a really intimate drama mm. with these two people. And it doesn't. So we want to talk about the whole writing process of mm. that. And how you even started, where the idea came from, why sure. even the two popes. Okay, so um, g- winding back the clock about four years ago, I happened to be in, in Rome on a vacation, um, found myself in St. Peter's Square, and yeah. as fate should have it, or as God should divine, Pope Francis was giving an open-air mass, 
and he was up on the super screen and St. Peter's Square was teeming as it always is but yeah. the, this was this was just shoulder to shoulder not just with Catholics but with people who who, who see him as a very interesting voice in, in global affairs mm. um, and having been raised Catholic in quite an intensely Catholic family I knew about the other Pope as well the the, the German Pope the Shadow Pope who had done the unthinkable and resigned in 2013 mm. and uh, I, I thought a, a question really um, sprang into my mind um, when was the last time a Pope resigned and even though I'm a Catholic I didn't have I didn't know the answer so I pulled out my phone and I googled it and it was a, one of those moments where you know those holy shit moments where you go okay there must be a story here because the number that came up was 700 years 700 years since a Pope resigned wow and I thought, why would the most traditional pope of the modern era, which is Pope Benedict, the mm -hmm. German, have done the most untraditional thing imaginable and resigned? And that sort of question drove me. When I got back to London, I sort of started to see this as a play, uh, as, as a debate between these two. One a, one a, a conservative, the, mm -hmm. the German Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict, and Cardinal Bergoglio from Argentina, mm -hmm. who um, became, who took the name Pope Francis, a, a, a true reformist in in spirit, and um, and I thought it might even um, speak to the broader conversation in society between progressives and conservatives, where um, you know they, we seem to be increasingly polarized and entrenched in positions, and can can a middle ground be found? And I thought, okay, that that. Um, that feels and smells like a play. Mm. So that's so I wrote it as a play. Um, and how long did it take you to to write that as a play? I mean, was it? I mean, must have been tons of research. Well, there was a lot of research with all these things. I mean, you're always walking on sacred ground when you're yeah. doing, doing anything about historical characters. But this is especially are. sacred, lit yeah. literally sacred ground. Um, so many, so many people have heightened sensitivities about it. One point four billion. Catholics in the world. Wow. Um, so you know you 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 have to get it right, and the way you you try to get it right is to is to absorb all the information you can, the the broad picture stuff, the political attitudes, the statements, but also then the eccentricities, the little personal foibles, which sort of give you a real insight into their into their deeper character. Mm. And then as a moment, you kind of then I I feel it as a kind of ratchet click of, of okay, I have them. And and then I start, and I don't really do once when I feel it. Um, I that's when I start writing, and um, and then I'll do more research when I'm done, just to check that I haven't strayed too off piste. Yeah. Did you have like a moment when you were sort of in the initial drafting stages where you were thinking, do I need to get permission from the church? Are they going to find out about this? Are they going to come after? Like to to you know. Um, have, have any issue with it or complaints yeah. or was yeah. there any of that or no, well my my rule of thumb is always um, better ask better to ask forgiveness than than permission but um, especially, especially yeah. through, you know <laughs> having been raised Catholic too mm. I kind of thought no there's no way sure. there's no way we're going to even get them to you know an yeah. answer from them about yeah. doing it yeah. um, and you know I, the, the work couldn't wait for that um yeah. I've also worked in this territory before, and uh, uh, I've never, uh, apart from the Stephen Hawking project, where I was based on a the book, theory of everything. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, where there was a, that drew me, you know, the autobiography of Stephen Hawking's ex-wife. 
that was essential that I get permission. That took eight years to get permission. Seriously? So I, wow. um, you know, I don't want to say if, if every project took eight years to get the permission to do mm-hmm. it. And that um, was before you'd even written it, or had you already written a theory of everything at that point? Or no, I, I, I began um, to have discussions with Jane Hawking mm-hmm. and then, um, and then uh, began writing sort of on spec, very uninsured. It may have been profitless work. Um, but I was, you know, I was hoping that eventually she would, um, you know, sign and and she eventually did but it was eight years in the in the making you know takes a long time to win people's trust Mm. and it's it's an interesting point because Stephen was very supportive of that as well uh in the end he was in the end yeah 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 which which is which is good again it kind of going back to the forgiveness like sometimes with films you've got to just make them and Mm. and then show people that actually it's all right well it was only a month before shooting that, that Stephen asked for a copy of the script Oh, oh. And I found out about it, and I was summoned to Cambridge, and um, I was very nervous. He of could course. he could have well have typed into his computer the words "lawyer up, dude," um, <laughs> but it, but actually, uh, he he said the ending of your film is too sweet, wow. which blew me you away. You took as a compliment. <laughs> you were yeah. like, "Yeah, well, I'll take yeah. that." Yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> I remember saying, "Well, that's Hollywood, professor," and yeah. then his face broke into this huge. Beatific smile, and and so that was the that was the blessing that that we needed. So. And this was a month away from shooting. And at this point, you produced this movie as well as yeah. wrote it. Yeah, with working I, title. Yeah, I think that's amazing because your journey before that was mm. you'd made quite a bit of TV, you'd made shorts, you'd made a couple of little, you know, another Small film stuff. which you directed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then suddenly to get this film that obviously won the Oscars must have been an incredible. Yeah, it was. Up. It kicked the door in really, mm. um, and. I always knew there was a club um, and that I wasn't in it. Sure. <laughs> well, I got membership with that, you know, and, yeah, so, and no, suddenly no, the I'm phone sure. starts ringing and, and you're, you're, you know, you've built something that people respect mm-hmm. and they want to build something too. And they kind of go, let's get the same guy, the same builder, the same architect mm-hmm. who did that one. That, right. that looks pretty good. So, you know, suddenly the work starts coming because you've got something on your resume which shows you can, you can pull off. You was know, there some something absolutely significant? Was there some difficult times during that eight-year process where you're going? Am I going down the right lines here? You know, to lead you to the two popes, eventually where you are now. Yeah. Was the moments of you know doubt? And doubt. Of, We're talking the darkest hour as well. Is another. Yeah. Film. No, you live with doubt. I mean, uh, I, I view the film industry as a, as an industry of rejection in the main. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get many more no's than you ever get yeses, mm-hmm. until it, it turns. Until you you sort of suddenly really establish yourself. And then it becomes a very um, wonderful, benign place. But yes. but boy, you can spend your whole lifetime trying to, you know, find an entrance into that secret garden, as mm-hmm. it were. You know, so no, it was extremely fulfilling to to have that first success, and then, and I still ninety percent of the work I do is I develop myself. So I'm okay. not I'm not necessarily waiting for the phone to ring. Sometimes it does, and you know, it's Queen, and they say, "Do you want to do Bohemian Rhapsody or something?" Right. And you go, "Okay, I'm going to take this call." But, of course, but yeah. it's, but mainly I'm I'm waiting for those little moments of personal inspiration to do you know develop my own projects, which is what happened with the two popes. Which is what happened with the two popes, and and I kind of I have a team around me now who. Once I have a, an idea and I'm able to sort of um, come up with either a first draft or a play or a book, I know how to sort of put it into the bloodstream of the industry now mm. and, and, and how to get it read by people who, who, who have the potential to make that film. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a completely different landscape. Mm. And it's interesting the way that you've kind of 
uh, created the two popes because first of all, it's very human. Like both of the two popes, um, as I sort of mentioned with the backstories, there's kind of this very very human, um, but also very big themes. Like for for the um, Pope Francis, his his story is almost. Uh, something that I find extremely fascinating in in storytelling is mm. that he's got this moment where he's got the sort of the clear, obvious root of of the love, mm. and then you know I guess you could all identify that as the moment when something good that you wanted to happen didn't happen. Mm. But then if you look at the results later on, he becomes this huge figure that that actually does a huge sort of greater good in terms of reforming the church. So it's, it, I think that's a fascinating kind of nugget of. Uh, miniature storytelling even even just in that yeah no it's pretty classic i mean in the hero's journey as Mm -hmm. as it's defined there's the call and that's literally what what it is in this case god calling you Mm. and he's he's reluctant he's got other avenues he could pursue he's in love with someone he could have a normal a secular life but he goes no i'm going to walk down the road less traveled and um it's a thorny one and uh and his arc is so super interesting because he started out as quite an authoritarian guy who people we met who knew him back in those days said we called him the man who never smiles. And you see him today, he's all smiles. He's he's really, whether it's a persona he's developed or whether it's just that he's overriding his normal software um, <laughs> on a daily basis, um, he's he's forged this new personality this humble man that we know i think that's what makes it so so fascinating as a film is because he's he is such a flawed character like in in terms of the way he's he's portrayed he's like he's a, he's a guy that feels he's made mistakes he's seeking redemption mm-hmm. and i find it like in 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 many ways it's kind of quite supportive of of him as a person and as religion as a whole because it's kind of saying well you know we've got a leader who has really fought for his own redemption and mm. then he's he's now sort of trying to mm. reform things because he doesn't feel like he's good enough and i think mm. that's quite a inspiring quite positive thing i think for the the church in a way yeah the, the church and any institution if we if we had more leaders who were admitting of their faults and failings and and that that um, they weren't a finished product and that they were capable of being wrong you know um we, the world would be a better place um, mm. sadly we're full of as Yates said, people with passionate intensity, you know, um, and uh, and you know where that gets you. You know, you end up with autocratic rule. And um, interesting, we're speaking on the on the day of the election. We'll, we'll, we'll see what um, Boris does with his power, mm-hmm. but um, uh, we hope that he uses it in a in a much more democratic way than yeah. than we see in America. Absolutely. Um, in terms of then sitting down and writing it turning it from your play into a screenplay how was that process was did the play go down well how what happened there for you to then go look i've you know i've just done bohemian rhapsody or probably around the same time Mm. darkest hour is you you, you're in a place where people are Mm. going hello what's what's next Mm. so did people come to you to say let's turn this into a screenplay or had you already uh, yeah, I'd, I'd already thought it was it had potential as a screenplay, but I thought it started as a play. I'd, mm. I'd spent ten years as a playwright in my twenties, and and uh, and had been many years since I'd written a play, so I wanted to do that and get back and get my foot back in the door. Mm. So um, that was a perfect way to start. But then I went to LA, and um, my agents over there said, um, "Listen, why don't you take some meetings with some film film studios while you're here and, mm-hmm. and just pitch this and." And there's a guy called Dan Lin, who's a producer, and um, he's interested in doing a movie of Pope Francis. 
Um, and he's been talking to Fernando Morales about doing a Pope Francis movie. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd been kicking that idea around for a couple of years and they didn't have a script or anything. So we, we decided to join forces. So Dan, Lynn and I went, went in and we, we did the studios and I told them, you know, pitch the story and they're all interested, but they wanted the weekend to think about it. Okay. And then on Friday, last meeting on a Friday, went into Netflix and took the elevator up and went into a room and three very studious young women, faces lowered over notepads. They said, please tell us your story. I told them the story of the movie. They looked up from their notepads and said, yep, we'll make that movie. And I said, how much will you give us? And they said, well, whatever it costs. Wow. And, uh, and I remember thinking, do your parents know that you're doing this? <laughs> and um, and, so and we, were, we were off to the races. And um, they, they were a fantastic partner. And if anyone wonders why the world's best filmmakers are, are be- beating a path to their door, mm-hmm. it's, it's just that the green light you know it, it's mm. it's like scott fitzgerald the green light across the across you know the lake and yeah. gatsby you know it draws you um you get to tell your story and you get that you get the budget to, to to tell it well so in our case we're able to go to argentina and shoot all those sequences mm-hmm. and 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 make this build the sistine chapel for god's sake you know a one Actually, it's five inches bigger than the real Sistine Chapel. You need to get a camera in, obviously. Your lens, yeah. right? For the front lens, five yeah. inches probably still not enough. But anyway, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that's it. That's so fascinating, isn't yeah. it? It's that freedom as well, I guess. Yeah. That that's that's kind of. I mean, that is one of the, the benefits of Netflix. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm guessing like a lot of other Netflix uh, stories that I hear that they gave you kind of fairly free reign to tell the story in the way you intended. And yeah, absolutely, which is yeah. fantastic. Plus, you, you know, the, the thing that was sort of keeping us all at arm's length a little bit was, oh, what a shame, we'll have to give up the theatrical experience. Yeah, I guess that means we won't up, be up for any more awards, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe maybe if we're pure about our motives, it's about reaching people with our stories, and so Netflix makes sense. Mm-hmm. But, gee, I love those award ceremonies and stuff and being nominated. and uh, So, you know, we're all on that fence thinking, ah, you know, right. cinema or Netflix, cinema or Netflix. But now, you know, they're they're showing a huge commitment and and support for, you know, the whole awards campaigns. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just they're just that. smashing it this yeah. year. You know, and the um, fact you did get theatrical with the two, we parts. did get theatrical, and and the you know most of the of the I think there's probably a handful of about six of major Netflix movies that we we all enjoyed the same sort of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, runs of between you know three weeks and six weeks including the irishman and mm-hmm. marriage story and mm-hmm. dolomite is my name and um so and and then you know they've been absolutely stunning in, in positioning us for the awards and and now all the nominations are flowing and mm-hmm. i think um uh, they're they're a real threat to the old traditional studio model now so you're so glad you walked up those stairs and pitched it that way are you are you good at pitching now is that the kind of obviously it's not easy sometimes as a screenwriter to go in the room and pitch i know a lot of screenwriters i know find that very difficult they're yeah. not great at speaking they don't they find that oh, and the, and the way that's set up as well is it's you know it's as not you say, easy you have you have three people sort of sat at a go and watch author, your story authoritative yeah. desk kind of yeah. judging you yeah yeah um, so have you got have you got better at it? Do you? I, th- I I I've probably got better at it, and I've become less concerned about it um, mm. because they used to have classes and things for like go on a pitch retreat where you can work on your pitch mm-hmm. and 
it, it was so sort of manufactured and yeah, fake. Yeah, say this and, by then and, and this Yeah, by and then. Don't, yeah. don't, you know, use your hands more or use your hands less and yes. and say, you know, and, and um, ultimately it's not really about that. It, ultimately it's about um, if there's a if there's a fantastic nugget at the center of your story, if it's a, if it's a concept, if they can see a, a really interesting, dramatic um, engine inside that story, go, mm-hmm. oh, wow. Then they can imagine the scenes that follow. The French have a phrase, scenes a faire, mm-hmm. the scenes that naturally follow from a premise. And so if you, if you just go in and very calmly just set their own in, wheels turning in their heads, it, it does 90% of it for you, and you don't have to coach yourself for six weeks on you know on the beach at you know venice beach and yeah. talking into the wind and stuff okay now i'm ready to go you Sounds know it's quite nice though <laughs> that's, all right. that's, that's, that's <laughs> a very that's a very interesting point though about about the manufactured because it, mm. it's almost how i feel about acting as well like when you try and like force a performance to be too mechanical mm. rather than coming from the story or the you know the internal life of the thing it's kind of it's something that applies to a lot of things and i think there's a lot of school of thought of trying to be too formulaic yeah. in, in pitching or in, you know, in, trying in to everything. meet like people rather in, than just being yourself everything. and being passionate about the, the product that you want to get. Absolutely. Anthony Hopkins was um, very interesting. I just watched him last week in LA doing a Q&A and he, he was asked what, what he th- viewed as the ins- essential ingredient in good acting and he said relaxation, which is not a word I would have expected him to say. Mm. Um, I thought he might have said preparation, something mm. like that. Um, listening, you know, they often say, listen to your, your, your co-actors and respond. Um, but he said relaxation and, and you just have to view his performance to see how profoundly intimate it is. Mm-hmm. Camera comes right in and there is no, there's no, uh, artificial there's quality no in there. The no. Well, we can see it. This yeah. is the yeah. thing. We're so used to watching movies. We're yeah. so used to watching TV. We can tell when someone's not being real. Mm. Yeah. That's what I, when I'm directing, I look for the falsities. I look for when people aren't telling the truth within yeah. their performance. Like, I didn't believe you there. Right, let's, yeah. let's work on that bit. So we're used to it. So it's a perfect uh, example. Um, yeah. Relax. It's great. You watch any TV program now and the people who've been in it for so long, mm. They're relaxed. They're relaxed. They're relaxed. And but the day players, they're the ones you go, oh, you can sort of see the little bits of acting happening, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And that's it. It's, it's those tiny moments of like just being a little bit conscious or putting something on and you just don't see it. I mean, but um, he's also um, behind that relaxation is preparation. Yeah. So 100%. to feel to feel relaxed, you you have to have the yeah. lines and so forth. And I remember one little detail. He ha- he said um, he announced very early that there's going to be a, a an annoying little fly in one scene. <laughs> And he's just going to bat it away. You know, we didn't know what to think of yeah, what, why, mum, what was his rationale right. for it. <laughs> fly now. No, you don't actually, if you see the movie, he, yeah. you hear the sound effect of a fly and he, he bats it away with his hand in the middle of a scene. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember that scene. At, there is, Gardens, no, there is no yeah. fly. You don't, you don't oh, ever really? see a fly, okay. no. But it's, mm, I almost like, pictured one. Well, that's it. The well, you do. Your mind, your mind does connect oh, the dots. Oh, that's, yeah. that's crazy. And that's interesting to talk about our mind there because you're jumping into the pitching thing again. Is that, it's we like to hear stories and it's that whole if you tell the story in your relaxed way mm. their mind is do you want them to go off rather than telling mm. your exact pitch the perfect way mm. and that can be enough sometimes it could be mm. one seed of an idea right mm. and then they go mm. how many times have you pitched in a room has it been quite a lot or is a it lot. less yeah yeah no I, I was very bad because i was very nervous early on um and uh, uh, you know, very limited success, and um, couldn't get anything through the pitch process. 
any, really? at all um, in the early days. So I was I was pretty lousy. But it was also that I didn't, you know, you didn't have a reputation. And so mm. you were talking to the guy who makes coffee, you find out. You know, he's not, yeah. Bobby, who you should be speaking to, is upstairs. He's two floors up. And yeah. at the end of the meeting, they go, "This is pretty good. We should, you should, we should tell Bobby about this." And, so, and you're thinking, "Why isn't Bobby in the room?" Yeah, you know? and, and who are well, you? Tell Bobby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. if you tell Bobby, it'd be very yeah. different to what yeah. I just told yeah. you. Exactly. Yeah. Suddenly, yeah, Bobby's yeah. coming back, going, oh, "I love your idea," and you're like, "That that's not mine." Yeah. yeah. yeah something. And that's else. that's a good point as well because you you kind of, I guess, it's either your reputation or who you're sort of who you've got behind you when you're going into those meetings kind of makes a lot in terms of whether they're open-minded enough to actually listen to the idea in the first place, I guess. Yeah. I mean, an, an analogy might be, um, say, call a, a big movie for a studio a skyscraper. And that's a particular skill. It's not like building a bungalow. And so if you've done a skyscraper and someone wants to build another one, you're going to go to an architect, Charles Foster or someone, you're going to say, can you build me one? And you don't go to your local corner guy. To, you go. You probably don't. I mean, you don't have the experience of pulling that off. Mm. So once you've done one, um, then you go in and you and pitching an idea, saying mm. my next skyscraper is going to look like this, yeah. and people go, Rather "Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting." Yeah. Otherwise, it's it's a terrible, it's a terribly tough act to convince someone to buy something that you've never proven you can make. Mm. Yeah. Which, which is that one of the reasons why you then produced straight away in terms of the theory of everything. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you were the one actively going out searching for money, speaking to the finances. Had Ultimately, you, I, d wow. I decided to take much more charge of the, of the whole process. And, and I'm still in the process of trying to, trying to do that. Uh, so that, um, you know, that you can be an effective, um, player right through the process rather than just be marginalized often writers are thank you very much and you're done mm -hmm. and uh and often we have much more to offer than that and uh being a producer sort of keeps you at the table yeah no it absolutely does otherwise mm. it's like thank you let's let's mm. move on let's talk about the actual process of writing what do you, do you have uh notes around your room how no, do you I'm do not it? a post-it you're not a post-it guy no do you no. do scriptment or anything like that um it's funny. I've only just been been asked in recent years about about process, and I've never really thought about it because it's all been kind of instinctive. But I did a masterclass for the for BAFTA, which is which is online, and uh, mm. and I realized that one of the keys for me was knowing your ending. And one of the mistakes I made in the beginning is I'd start off with a hiss and a roar, but I would have no idea where I'm going. And um, yeah, most 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 authors and writers will tell you that's fine. That's how we all work. We let the characters speak to us, mm -hmm. and that they tell us where to go. Yeah. Well, mine my characters were deaf, dumb, and mute. You <laughs> they know. go off in the, the They they weren't telling the me they weren't telling me shit. So um, I had to, I had to say okay I. I have to treat my characters much more as my slaves and order them around. Mm. Therefore, I need to know where I'm going. And and now I, I kind of don't start a project unless I know how, I've got a very convincing endpoint. And then the ending actually contains the DNA of everything that precedes it. It's interesting because wow. a lot of people do struggle with endings and they end up, I mean, you know, even some of the biggest filmmakers, like, uh, I, I can't remember who we did recently, but there's a, there's a couple over the last... Uh, you know this Oscar season, where they sort of went in and reshot the ending um, of their film, and they're like mm. they're really, really big filmmakers. Um, and it is—it's quite. If you don't know what it is, I guess it does 
the actual process of shooting probably changes the story so much that you maybe you do need to reevaluate the ending if you don't know already. So yeah, it's, it's it's the peril of not knowing your ending mm. going in because then you're an ending should be the culmination of everything that precedes it, the 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 perfect kind of. Uh, resolution note which harmonizes everything and until then it's discordant it's tension 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 and it's the ultimate release um um musically it's like minor 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 major chord at the end um for that for that to work i mean if you don't know um how to set the scene and lay 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 in all the all the issues and the drama and the tensions and stuff then your chances of pulling off a perfect ending are, are very very small but if you know your ending, then you've you you're you're playing. You know you're, um, you've got it. All, everything's up your sleeve. Yeah. You, you you can just um do misdirects. You go. Oh, I'm going to tease you now. I'm going to take you off here a little bit. Not too much though. Mm -hmm. Not too much. Yeah, just, yeah. And then I'm coming back this way. And then so I'm going like to do this. And I know exactly where I'm going and where I'm taking you. And I'm going to make it disappoint you. And then mm -hmm. I go. Ah, no, no. And then we're going to turn that around and. And stuff, and then you land right on the spot. You do one, three and a half twists, twist one and a half somersault, and stick the landing. You know, and yeah. and that's a, that's a well made, um, and, you know, well made script. And did you always know that you were going to stick in the footage of the the real popes sort of at the end of the film? No, no, that was Fernando. And and is that is that something that required us any kind of permission? Yeah. It did, yeah. This is where the Vatican actually came to the party in the end and wow. gave us permission to use that. And we're one of the few um, narrative films, fiction films, that um, that they've ever allowed to have that. And had they seen the film at that yeah. point? No, they hadn't. They oh, had, we, that's we had, really we had, big. That's, wow. very, that's yeah. very trusting. They'd yeah. seen the script, so we gave... Oh, okay, that's... Yeah. So they, they know it's pretty favourable towards... Yeah. Mm. Well, it is a romance, I, 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 isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah. That's what's so nice about it. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. the connection, so therefore it's... It's, it's tough on them, negative. though. It's tough on, it, it's, on their paths. Sure. It, it is, but right. it, I feel like it's. I feel like it, it does. You know, there's there's a couple of mentions of, of you know some of the more controversial issues about what you know what priests are doing and getting removed from parishes and stuff. But mm. it doesn't go too heavily into them. Uh, it it accepts a level of of culpability, which I think, in many ways, is like had had it just sugar-coated and not mentioned them it would be more detrimental to the mm. church because it's yeah. kind of like just sort of you know sugar-coating over it but the fact that it's kind of it does slightly cover those areas uh, it had to be there it, it had, had, to, it be had there. to be there yeah, yeah. and uh, i think it's kind of i think it's quite fair uh, in a lot of respects yeah it? what is that plant it's oregano your gardener gave it to me you're very popular i just tried to be myself Whenever I try to be myself, people don't seem to like me very much. Confidential church documents were allegedly leaked to the press. Alleging corruption and misconduct among the clergy. I hope this business is not too distressing. Does a shepherd run away with the wolves up here? We are moving in directions I can no longer condone. I've struggled to do what must be done, but I've lost. Hopes can't resign. If you do this, you will damage the papacy forever. I can no longer sit on the chair of St. Peter. You're mistaken. You are serious. I cannot play this role anymore. There's a saying, God always corrects one pop by presenting the world with another pop. I should quite like to see my correction. Cuando tenga la tierra, la tendrán los Reform needs a 
politician. The most important qualification for any leader is not wanting to be leader. It's not me who needs to be satisfied. It's 1.2 billion believers. You're the right person. Church needs to change and you could be that change. It could never be me. between uh, writing The Two Popes then and Bohemian Rhapsody where potentially you might have been asked to come on to do the project uh, as you mentioned there so is that more uh, uh, by committee because the sort of well this is the story we want to tell whereas with The Two Popes you could go off well, and I'll tell you find how your that um, I, I knew this guy Dennis O'Sullivan he, he would would circle each other for a while he was executive producer for GK Films that was producing this movie about Freddie Mercury and Queen. Mm -hmm. And he told me three or four years ago that they had been working on it for a number of years and was still struggling to get the script. And I wished him luck and so forth. And then fast forward four or five years and the phone rings and he says, Hey, it's Dennis. Um, Listen, um, we're kind of run out of options here on this Bohemian Rhapsody thing. And we're ready to do one more roll of the dice and wondering whether you'd be interested in in having a go at the script because we haven't got anything we can shoot. And um, I said, well, I'll be honest with you, I don't really know much about Freddie or or Queen Mm -hmm. and their their story. So why don't you tell me, um, just because you've spent 10 years on this, tell me me their story just over the phone. So in about 10, 15 minutes, he told me the story of Freddie and Queen. And I remember saying, what's the problem? That you've just told me the movie. And he said, really? (laughs) you're You're not looking at just a slice of it? And I said, no, the entire story you just told me should be the whole movie. It's got it all. I, and I had some things I wanted to do. I wanted to invest in very much in the Mary Austin story because I thought mm-hmm. of a gay man having the love of his life as a, well, a bisexual man whose love of his life as a woman was mm-hmm. fascinating. A sort of post-gay kind of story. Mm. Um, and uh, but, but for that, he, 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 he told me the story. And, and um, I, I thought the best thing to do was not to mess with what was there and it was like all the diamonds are lying on the floor you just need to string them together and so that that was a very easy and joyful um process i remember just loading up all the songs mm-hmm. in my in my laptop and going no no yes yes no no yes because i wasn't a, a massive fan so i i i, yeah. I, lo- I love the not all of I don't like the yeah. entire canon of Queen no, stuff. No, you didn't have a connection to them no, either. So you're no. like, well, it doesn't really work for this and movie, yeah. which is a great thing. Yeah, and it was it be. was great. And so I started. It was um yeah it was the, it was putting mu- using music also as a nar- narrative vehicle so that it's not time out from the narrative, but the song will somehow progress the narrative. And and Freddie's music was quite autobiographical, especially mm. you know the, the the key ones. Find me somebody to love, mm. uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, which. I saw a, a conference of um, of, in, of Oxford dons debating the meaning, the hidden meaning, and they couldn't come to any consensus about what the hidden hidden meaning in Bohemian Rhapsody is. It's quite obvious to me. It's a coming out yeah, story. Sure. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. 
that, that's Oxford Dons for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a, a relatively um, uncomplicated writing process. And with that, did you just literally sit down and start and go, okay, well, I, we're going from A no. To my B. first thing was I said, well, I want to meet, meet the band, and um, mm. and they said, oh. That they'll be very happy to hear that because none of the other writers, of whom there were about ten wow. at that point, had had spent time with the band. They'd all gone off. It, it seemed to me, or apparently, to um, off on their own take mm. without you know going to the horse's mouth. So I had a wonderful experience of sitting with uh, Brian May over several days, and also Roger Taylor. And Brian would play songs and just tell me how he put the songs together and play a few chords and then say, and then Freddie would suggest this. And I taped it all. And at some point, I should release the tape. You should. Because it's, uh, yeah, be it's, it's not only a master class in, in guitar, but it's totally. very, very moving. And, and you yeah. were like, I don't like that song. Didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stop playing that one. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you really like real life stories? I mean, there's, there's obviously. I a, apparently do. Yeah. Mm. I mean, there's there's yeah, a, there's a common theme in those three movies, very, isn't yeah. there? No, it's, it's crept up. Kind of me. moving. You know, moving tales of, of yeah. human redemption. I guess is kind of yeah, yeah they are, and all very different theme. sort of. You know, and there's darkest hour thrown in there as well. You've got yeah. this real mishmash of wonderful sort of turning, in, turning into comedy. a very strange Mount Rushmore. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Freddie and the Pope and and uh, mm. Stephen Hawking. And, uh, you, but that must Churchill. be great for you in terms of where you can go next, because you haven't yeah. put yourself in a box. You haven't said right. Oh, I just do straight dramas or I just do musicals or I just do horror, you know, you're going, well, actually, I, I'm a writer. Yeah. And I can write whatever works. Yeah. Was, did you set out to do that or did it just fall that way? Um, I, well, I'm as ignorant about uh, almost every subject. I'm equally ignorant about everything. Mm. And so it's just what it just hooks my curiosity. And I can never govern when, what's going to do that. And and it turns out that my curiosity is is engaged by a, a wide range of quirky things, um, and uh, you know it's been serving me well. So I don't want to change anything about it. I just want to st- you know keep all the channels open, and you never know wh- when you're going to be standing in like St Peter's Square and and just get an idea like that. You know, mm-hmm. were you on set quite a lot of of the two? Not parts? a great deal. No. no, I went to Rome, and I remember when the first Rome, yeah. the first day that. Uh, I saw Anthony Hopkins as in his in the role Full of Pope, Pope Benedict, and mm. he did his scene. And I went up to Fernando and said, "It's it's amazing. He's he's so wonderful." Um, but yeah. I have one question: When did you decide that he wouldn't use a German accent at all? And Fernando, who's South American, looked at me and said, "Isn't he?" And I went, <laughs> "No, no, it's not. It's Uh-oh, vaguely probably. it's vaguely Welsh." <laughs> He's a pretty vague yeah. <laughs> And he said, "Oh, the bugger lied to me. Um, yeah. He said he was doing a German <laughs> accent." And uh, I said, "No, no, it's Welsh." That's but, but incredible. The thing is, you you don't like. I noticed it when it when it first came through because there's it's almost in the script. He sort of says, "Let's talk in in English or yeah. something." Mm. And like, but the thing is, he's so, they're so captivating the two of them. That you just immediately forget the fact that he is speaking in English, and that there, there may be, be an unwritten of... rule that you're allowed one accent, not two. Maybe, yeah. 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 The, the other, yeah, the other, the other actor does very much. Uh, Jonathan Price. Jonathan yeah, Price. He, he does very much pull off the uh, uh, Argentinian. The, the Argent, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it, it does feel, you know, when he's speaking Latin as well. I mean, the Latin seems seems pretty good from both of them. I'm not I'm not an expert at all, so I'm no. definitely not the, the one to consult on this. But mm. there, there is an ease between the two of them, and it always does feel very 
authentic. And in know? Germany, they dubbed the movie anyway. They so did. into, you know, a perfect yeah, okay. two minutes. Thank you. Thank you. Just, um, just, I mean, just a, just a last, a last sort of question on, on the, the writing side, because something that really struck me about this film and also in, in Darkest Hour, like one of my favorite scenes in that is the, the Dunkirk scene where they're in the church. And you managed to convey the whole scenario of the people that are left behind in Dunkirk in like 30 seconds or something when, when they have that walk through the thing yeah. about before they're about to be bombed. Yeah. But in, in The Two Popes, you've got such big themes uh, and so many of them, as I mentioned, like sort of poverty, society, and you cover it so quickly mm. and so effectively whilst also keeping it very intimate. Mm. Is that is that always like part of your process to try and tell these big expansive stories in, in a it's, it's also the, very small it's way? It's the advantage of a flashback device, um, mm. especially in the two popes, where you can be very selective about the moments you choose. And if you and we had much more Argentinian sequence. Mm. When we showed it to audiences, they told us we don't want you to leave our two popes. Um, we, we'll we'll jump away short snatches of time, but we don't want to be you know delayed long right. and so we started reducing them, reducing them and we we cut down to very very i think very very powerful um concentrated little scenes so you're with the popes you cut back and suddenly they're rolling drugged women out of aircraft and being thrown yeah. into the ocean you know and it just it's you make connections well, you don't you don't have to show all the steps that precede it and it's a montage kind of approach to it well, one of my favorite moments of all is, is when the, the priests uh, that Francis had, had betrayed him in the Argentinian conflict. Yeah. And there's, there's zero dialogue, and it's just a sequence of them in a church together going to mass and forgiveness. And for, for me, that's like the, the, the kind of the essence of the film and, and forgiveness. And it's just beautiful acting. Preceded by a scene where, in, in, in as normal part of the mass, you, the priest washes his hands and exactly. says, cleanse you of your sins. Yeah. And he looks up and he sees the man who he sinned against. Perfect. And then yeah. they have the, the right of um, the way you embrace and make friends with your neighbor. And they hug each other, and um, yeah, that usually gets people going. Yeah, I yeah. Love yeah, I really like that that actor. I think he was he was great. I'm He's sure. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, we've got to wrap up. Sadly, uh, Anthony McCartan, this has been amazing. Thank you very much. The Two you, Popes much. is out on Netflix, and it is in cinemas. Hopefully, it'll still be in cinemas when you hear this. Uh, Anthony, where can people follow you? Are you online? Can people uh, follow you? Are you on Zero socials? footprint. Unfortunately, oh. I'm available on your podcast now, though. Yes, you are. I am. Which is amazing. The Filmmakers Podcast, you can just answer me there. Just keep listening to this one. Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Wow, wow, wow. How fantastic was that? Thank you, Anthony McCartan. Thank you so much for your advice. I hope you enjoyed that. There was so much there, so much knowledge for you, screenwriters and producers and filmmakers, to take from that. I absolutely love listening back to that while editing it. Thank you, thank you for listening and staying with us for this long. It is coming up to 2020. In fact, when some of you listen to this, it will be 2020. So, it's exciting. It is absolutely bloody exciting because you've got a chance to start again with your projects you've got a chance to get out there and do something a little bit different knock on the right doors because it's so important to do it because this job means being a filmmaker means getting off your ass and doing it an opportunity is knocking you can hear it so open that door it's up to you 
No one else is going to do it for you. Anthony McCartan just proved that. He was the one who kept doing it. He's the one who went out there, made a load of shorts and directed a feature before he carried on writing and getting his scripts to the right people. Every time you get up, someone's going to knock you down. It's just going to happen. Failure is part of being a filmmaker. So you get your ass back up. Remember who the USP is. It's you. And I know the fear can get you because that's one of the biggest factors of why we don't do it. Why we procrastinate and think, oh, I could have done that, but, but I had to do this job or I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't. Because of the fear. It's scary. The fear of failure is worse. And I'm dealing with that right now. Um, it's 2020, soon, if not now. And I've got three films coming out this year. I'm shit scared. You know, what are people going to say? What the review's going to be like? How am I going to be judged? I will be judged. It's how. And the voices say, in my head, am I good enough? Am I capable? Hell, yeah, I am. But fuck me. Can those voices get to you? So, you've got to carry on. You have got a gift. You. And what you do with it is up to you. Thank you so much for listening in 2019. We've had some incredible people on the podcast. We started off in January by giving you Neil Marshall, the director of Dog Soldiers. I mean, wow, what a start to that year um, when he talks about directing. And then instantly moved on to, to Joe Perlman, who made the Bross documentary When the Screaming Stops. If you've not seen it, it's absolutely fantastic and hilarious um, and then we had Elizabeth Blake Thomas who made seven features in two years if that doesn't inspire you to go out there and make a feature yourself then nothing will episode 94 was uh, Nathan Von Minden on how he got funding and distributed his films by cold calling this podcast has given you I feel and hopefully this podcast has given you so much advice and knowledge about how you can go out there and make your film that's why we set this up we've had so many indie filmmakers Brian Barnes after that Josh Forlan Dominic Brunt James Bush Jason Wingard Tom Patton um, Katie Sheridan and Ian Diaz uh, also they tell you how they made their web series as well um, we've had Sean McConville and Stephanie Joland, Alberto Schumacher on with Don Memoir talking about I Love My Mum Jim Cummings the fantastic indie filmmaker he's an inspiring guy if you haven't or are not following him on Twitter then do his film Thunder Road is amazing also, on the podcast in 2019, we've had uh, Stephanie McBain, the Lancaster Guys team, Grant Pitchler. He made a film in two days. Uh, John Langridge on his 13 Grace film, The Shakespeare Sisters, um, uh, David Tarleton. Mike Atkinson made his feature film on his own with no crew. That's episode 120. Um, I mean... What more can I say? Other indie filmmakers been on this year are Adam Egypt Mortimer, Simon Cox, whose film, Invasion Planet Earth, is out now. Do go see that. Really, buy it now. Support indie films. Um, Rowan Athali, Rain McCormack, um, Ross Clark, Casper Searle Jones, where Matthew and Tori Butler Hart joined us for that one. Um, Ed Bowes, Sarah Megan Thomas. Um, Tom Cullen, the actor, now director, and uh, uh, last week, Zachary Adler and James Edward Barker. And then we've had the Hollywood people on this year as well, the Hollywood producers and directors, including Fernando Morellas, 
which was two podcasts ago. Jack Binder, who made First Reform. Scott Mann made Final Score. Beckon Woods, who wrote A Quiet Place. And they directed their feature film, which they wrote as well, Haunt, which is amazing. Uh, James Kent, who made The Aftermath. Emily Mortimer and Dolly Wells came on. Tom Harper, who made The Aeronauts. Zach Lipovsky, Bert Marcus, David Raymond, Peter Del Vecco, who's producer of Frozen. And we had editor of Star Wars, Colin Gowdy, as well as a screenwriter of Jurassic Park, David Kep. Um, VFX directors has Delul and Teamover and Solar. You can download every single one of those podcasts. Uh, just search the name of the person you'd like and put Filmmakers Podcast into Google and you'll find it. You can find that on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, uh, wherever else you get your podcasts, you will find it. So there's so many podcasts for you. So many podcasts. Also, we've had some amazing hosts join in so I'd like to thank them as well including Dom Lemoir who you've heard on this podcast Robbie McCain who's jumped in and produced and edited lots of the podcasts thank you Robbie Phil Hawkins whose amazing Star Wars fan film is out now uh, and then we've had Bart Edwards Julian Kostov Johnny Grant uh, Matthew Butlerhart and Tori Butlerhart joining me as co-hosts as well as Christian James Andy Roger and Dan Richardson oh, I wish 2020 to be amazing for you and if you have enjoyed listening to these podcasts then please do go to itunes apple Podcasts, give us a five-star review write something nice we do do this for free we do do this because i love talking to filmmakers and i've learned lots as well but if you can help us out and you can pass this on to your pals why not please help us help us to grow help us to get bigger it would mean the world to me so 2019 it's been an amazing year 2020 it's going to be even better three films coming out maybe four if we get food for thought going my uh, documentary about veganism and animal activism and uh, the environment so it could be four you never know i might make another feature before then because that's what we have to do right we get out there and we do it and we help support each other and that's what's really important do help support each other it's so important um, I hope to see you face to face at the Make Your Film event on January the 28th but I will see you next Tuesday and it will be Tuesday as we are joined by Christy Wilson Cairns she is a powerhouse she not only uh, co-wrote 1917 which is the brilliant Sam Mendes feature film but she's also co-wrote with Edgar Wright uh, his latest feature film One Night in Soho so next week is Kirsty Wilson Cairns. Until then, remember, you can go out and make your indie film, but know who your audience is. Get out there and do it. If you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. I tried to make that mean something. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for listening. I've been Giles Alderson. Take care of 2019. Welcome in 2020. It's going to be your year. Make it happen. Take care. This has been a transmission of the Podfix Network. For more about this show and other great Podfix programs, go to podfixnetwork.com.